Hello and welcome to the ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of the ICE's CPD program. I'm Steph Fairbairn, a knowledge manager here at the ICE. In this episode, we're going to discuss a very topical issue, bathing water for rivers. We look at the current status of the UK's rivers, the challenges we face in cleaning them up, and the roles engineers and engineering solutions can play in upgrading the status of our rivers. To explore all of this, I have two fantastic guests joining me from the Environment Agency, Martin Christmas, Area Environment Manager for North Yorkshire, and Ian Dunhill, Senior Advisor, Bathing Waters. Thank you guys both for joining us. Um, you will be able to introduce yourselves far better than I can. So starting with you, Martin, can you give us a couple of sentences, I guess, for the listeners to explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm uh, Martin Christmas. So uh, as you said, I'm an area environment manager. So I run a department in the environment agency based in uh, North Yorkshire. Uh, I have a geographical patch, North Yorkshire. Uh, I also have a portfolio, uh, which is faces uh, water, land and biodiversity, uh, bathing water and the Yorkshire coast and England's first river bathing water uh, at Ilkley uh, on the River Wharf. Uh, comes under my geographic jurisdiction. Thanks, Martin. I know we'll get onto the River Wharf at Ilkley at, at some point during this conversation. Ian, give the give the listeners a lowdown on who you are. Well, I'm Ian Dunhill, and I work in the the sort of national uh, team, uh, the water quality planning team, who are involved with everything to do with protected areas in particular. Uh, bathing waters are, are a specific protected area, so. I've spent a couple of decades now working on the salty side of, of bathing waters because that's where most of our bathing waters are in the sea. And I kind of act as the bridge between the sort of the government and DEFRA um, and the, the environment and the business, which is the Environments Agency, trying to sort of square the legislation into the sort of practices and policies that I'm currently exclusively uh, looking at rivers and bathing waters. Obviously, we have our first bathing water designated on the wharf, and we think it's going to be the first of, of many. So um, I'm specifically looking at that at the moment. Thanks, Ian. And I guess, you know, the fact that that is the, the first of many is uh, is why we hope a lot of engineers are, are listening to this and picking up, you know, what, what their role might be in all of this. So I guess I want to kind of start by setting the scene um and I'll, I'll come to you martin if you could explain to us what when we're talking about bathing waters what are we talking about in terms of legislation and and what a bathing water looks like so uh, a bathing water is a what we call a protected area uh it's a place that is specially designated to be have the water quality managed in a, in a particular way against a particular set of standards we measure the bacteria that are in the water. The bacteria are used as indicators of primarily sewage, but also there's plenty of bacteria that come from anything that has got a gut. So that includes agriculture, it includes wildlife, birds and things like that as well. But a bathing water is a, a specific area of water where the water quality is actually controlled through regulation and permits set for, for any, any discharges on there. Bathing water is classified. So uh, you have a classification that's put out based on a four-year data set, four years worth of sampling to give you a classification of excellent, good, sufficient or poor. 
and that is updated once every year. So we add another year's worth of data in and we take another year's worth of data out on a rolling four-year program to make a sort of classification. The, the water quality standards that we use for bathing waters are based on studies of epidemiology. When people go into the sea, they measured the quality of the sea, they measured the bacterial levels in the sea, and ultimately came up with the standards that we uh, have from uh, through the WHO, through the European Union, and through the, the regulations that we have. So we have bathing waters have a specific set of regulations. Um, the, they're quite distinct from other, other things because uh, a bathing water is this um, self-supporting uh, protected area and it's different from other things that are managed to protect the ecology so it's specifically managed to protect human health. Thanks Ian. I guess this might be one for Martin then. Talking about ecology, what does that come under? What's the legislation around that and how does that differ? The main way that we've been assessing river water quality at the Environment Agency is using the methods given to us under the, what was the Water Framework Directive. It's now come into the uh, English regulations, so Water Framework uh, regulations. Uh, it's a composite of a number of things that are important to assess quality of rivers. So it looks at the chemistry, it looks at the animals that live there, uh, the fish and uh, the invertebrates, so things like stoneflies, mayflies, river shrimps, those kind of things. It also looks at the plants, and it does that for a number of reasons. So it's looking at a, a range of pressures that the uh, that rivers are put under. And so uh, we use water chemistry and invertebrates to understand organic pressure, so outfalls from uh, uh, from sewage works or uh, land spreading activities you know, manure that's run off agricultural fields, uh, that kind of agriculture um, input. Both of those will have a, a pressure on the river by reducing the oxygen level. And we can detect that either chemically or if the oxygen is reduced for a, a long period of time, then the invertebrate communities will change. So we look at things like uh, fish as well because they're a, a higher order predator. So it gives you an idea of how the, uh, the food web is working within a river. Uh, and fish will also tell you about some of the physical changes to a river. So during the Industrial Revolution, particularly here in Yorkshire, where we've got a lot of uh, woolen mills and further south in South Yorkshire, a lot of steel mills, it all started with you know hydropower. Uh, a lot of weirs were put in for, for both turning mills and other weirs were put in to abstract water. Fish can't get past those. So uh, when you look at the fish population, sometimes it's telling you something about the physical shape and structure of a river and barriers to animal movement as much uh, as, as it is around um, uh, the water quality. So all those, things, all those things are put together and the Water Framework Directive gives a classification to a water body, a stretch of, a stretch of water within a river system, and it gets a classification from, from good to poor, similar to bathing waters, not using bacteria it's based on the uh, the animals and, and, and the river chemistry so it, it's 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 almost what question are you asking in, when you say how clean is the river what what's the quality of the environment it really just depends what question you're asking whether that's around the animals that live there whether it's the chemistry and then with with bathing waters there's that link to human health uh, and the bacteria levels yeah, and I think that if you if you're looking at the bacterial levels in there um, and assessing them against these human health standards, it's not something we've ever done before. 
we, we've got our first designation in Martin's Patch on the wharf. Um, that's not the way that we've managed our rivers up until this point because the the fecal indicators we use, the bacterial indicators that we use, um, they come from sewage, definitely, um, but they also come from agriculture. But the organisms, the invertebrates, the fish that live in the river, they don't really affect them very much. So we haven't managed them in that in that way. We've been concentrating on the the things that have affected the, the ecology of the river rather than trying to manage the river specifically for people to put themselves in them. Um, and it's a really different mindset. So I guess building on that, Ian, what what state are the UK's rivers in and why are we having this change in mindset now? In terms of bathing water quality, I think it's a largely an unknown because we haven't, we, the Environment Agency works with the legislation which tells us what we have to do. It tells us how we've got to monitor, where we've got to monitor, the type of things that we've got to, to measure. And the bathing water standards just haven't been applicable previously. So we, we've got a, a pretty good idea that that when you have um, a source, a pathway and a receiving water in, in the coastal environment, the receiving water is, is a coastal resort, a bathing water in the sea. The pathway is the river and the source comes from either agriculture, urban drainage or, or through sewage. And a river acts as a pathway which takes it from the where the pollution comes from and delivers it to the sea. And that's how we've managed it previously. So we've got a good idea that that is going to be a higher level of concentration than uh, the, the, the sea would be. My, my sort of rough conception model of the world is that the sea is clean and the land is dirty and the rivers take the dirt from, from the land to the sea. So when you're trying to look at the quality of a, a river as being somewhere to put yourself into and immerse yourself into, you, you are inherently in a, in a, a different environment from, from the sea. We haven't managed it that way. So we don't know in, in terms of that, but we've got a pretty good idea that they're likely to present a, a higher risk um, than the the sea would, would do and, and the specific areas of the sea that are managed um, for the purposes of bathing waters. So in terms of water framework directive, when you look at uh, the quality of rivers, that's the, the chemistry, the invertebrates, the fish uh, and the plants, those elements, we always take the worst performing element to give that classification. So I would say that the rivers are probably cleaner than they ever have been since the Industrial Revolution, but there's still some work to do to get them to good status under that under that classification. So nationally, only 16% of rivers are at good status. But that doesn't mean that uh, the rest of the rivers are dirty because of water quality. There's a number of pressures working on that. So if we take the example of the bathing water at Ilkley, for example, uh, it, it only gets moderate under the Water Framework Directive, so it's middle of the pack. If you look at the water quality, it's great, really high. Look at the invertebrates, really high. The reason it gets moderate is because there's a number of, uh, of weirs and barriers downstream uh, and the fish can't migrate to Ilkley uh, from the ooze, so it gets moderate. So it can be a little bit confusing when you're trying to talk to members of the public about how clean is the river uh, and they're talking about water quality and you're talking about an integrated measure that includes uh, how much how much physical change there has been, you know, and that physical change can be weirs. It can be things like um, reservoirs or flood defence schemes where somebody's put in a hard concrete wall and has changed the 
changed or, or the rivers have been straightened over the years to improve conveyance for land drainage. You know, human beings have done a lot of things to the environment and, and, and those pre- pressures are all represented in that WFD classification. Thanks, Martin. Speaking about confusing things, can I just clarify with, with you, Ian? I think I'm right here. So say part of a river is is designated as a bathing water. That doesn't mean it's clean. That just means that that's where people go to swim. We've asked for this designation. We've got it. Is, is that right? Yeah. So a designation is a driver for a number of things to happen. Firstly, uh, what happens is the environment agency will draw up all the information that we've got and produce a bathing water profile. A bathing water profile goes on the internet on our website called Swimfo, um, and that lists the catchment, some of the sources of pollution that could come to it. It will produce a classification through monitoring that happens. So it requires us to go out and, and fill little bottles and, and measure the level of bacteria in it. Uh, it requires us to use those to make a classification. Um, it puts a uh, an obligation on the local authority to put a notice up near, near the bathing water to give us a general description of what that is, um, some of the issues around it. And, and it really, it marks it as a, and something that is managed specifically for bathing. But of course, what it doesn't do is it doesn't guarantee the quality. And traditionally, the, the, the sites that have been put forward to be designated uh, on the coast have been places that are, they have large numbers of bathers. And that's the, that is the single criteria that is used to designate a bathing water. It's got to have a large number of bathers. Um, the, the other things are taken into account by DEFRA uh, when they're actually deciding whether a, a site is or isn't suitable are the facilities. So a location may have great quality, but if it hasn't got any toilets, it hasn't got any car parks, and it isn't promoted as being a place to go to, it, it wouldn't be considered to be a bathing water. It, it's it's meant to be somewhere that you put a pin on the map and, and promote it as being somewhere, somewhere to go. In, in the case of the, the wharf at Ilkley, it's really unusual because it's a site that has got poor bathing water quality. We, we know that because we've assessed it last year. But that's really unusual because typically what gets put forward is, is places with, with good quality, higher quality. And so there's this time when a site becomes a designated bathing water. We have to wait for the results of the of the sampling. And, and in that time that we, we don't have a classification, there's no indication of um, what the quality is like to be for people. But they, you might be forgiven to think that because it becomes a designated bathing water, it automatically is, is suitable quality to be put forward for it. If a site is classified as poor, thankfully there are very few of them that are. Um, there's a requirement under the regulations that we work to to put a advice against bathing there uh, and that's uh, has a symbol with it um and that is got to be put up for the for the next season hopefully that gives people the indication of the fact that the water quality isn't great and and that then gives that assessment so people can look at this information they can see our website they can see the signage near uh, the bathing water and they can make their choices and that's one of the benefits of, of bathing water that they can have a, a comparative chart to say uh, I, I want to swim in the, the best quality bathing water or an excellent bathing water quality or I'm quite happy swimming in a sufficient bathing water or um, you, I, I don't want to swim in a poor bathing water. It gives them the information to be able to make their choices with. Thanks Ian. And I'm going to come back to 
the River Wharf in a, in a bit more depth in, in a minute. But I wanted to briefly just put us in a in a bit of context with with mainland Europe. So I've got I've got some stats. Um, France has 573 rivers with bathing water status. Italy has 73, Germany 38, and the Netherlands 33. Now, based on what you were saying a little bit earlier, Ian, about how this is a change in mindset, we're actually just starting to look at rivers in the UK as bathing waters. Do you think that's less indicative of, you know, scientific factors and if it is actually clean and more indicative of social factors and, and the fact that they've just worked i guess to to allocate more more rivers as, as bathing waters i think that's absolutely right so it's it's traditions so the the british tradition has been to go to the seaside that's that's what we've developed the, the seaside resorts around these were places to go this was somewhere that you went for your annual holiday and then managed with an infrastructure around them for people to go into the sea and and, and to bathe um, there's a season, a bathing season that people have, which is in the summer, and the, and the regulations specify a May to September bathing season. And that, that's been where we've come from. And Martin was reminding me, I think, that nowhere in Britain is more than 70 miles away from, from the coast. And even if you're living in Birmingham, it's not actually that far to get to the sea. And that's what we, we've traditionally done. So that's where our kind of... Um, uh, emphasis has been within it. it. It's interesting if you actually look at the, the the sort of mainland Europe sites. I mean, clearly some bits of Europe are a long way from the sea. So if you want to go into somewhere, you, you're going to have to go into something that's fresh. The majority of the inland bathing waters that are designated are in lakes, and the the rivers that are designated um, they are mostly in France. Actually, um, France by far have got the most number of bathing waters and most of those in rivers are in the south of France uh, or even in Corsica um, they've got quite a lot in there there aren't that many rivers that are, are actually designated given the the sort of the, the land area and the population and, and and if one compares the number of bathing waters that are designated around the coast uh, in mainland Europe versus the number that are designated uh, as inland bathing waters and even less for, for rivers you, it's a really quite a small proportion so, yeah, we, we just don't have this tradition of uh, going into rivers um, and, and bathing in, in the way that perhaps it was done as, as a promoted destination. But I think there has been use of rivers um, o over the years just based on their uh, location. So when it's a hot day, people will probably go and paddle lift their toes in the water. One of, one of the differences now is that people are having an expectation that the quality of, of a river will be suitable for them to do that. Uh, as, as Martin was alluding to, the Industrial Revolution changed rivers um, and it changed the way they managed. You know, we, we used not to have sewerage systems and we do have sewerage systems and the sewerage systems take the um, uh, the effluent from people and, and, and they treat it and they, they put it into the river. Uh, it's treated to standards that are appropriate to protect the wildlife within the river. And it's never been treated in a way that one would expect it to be suitable to, to bathe in. And it's a different mindset when people are now interacting with the, the open water environment in a, in a different way. And, and it's, it's going to take a long time for us to work this through and, and to understand it in a, in a way that where are places that are suitable to bathing in, um, in inherently lakes and ponds are going to have a, a lower risk um, than a, a river and inherently the sea is going to have a lower risk than a, a river so there's a really big challenge 
around uh, putting sites that are specifically said these are bathing destinations on, on rivers. And I don't think we're going to get any quick results from that. I think it's going to be something that's going to be around for quite a long time. Uh, and we're going to have to take a, a lot of work and a lot of efforts to, to try and manage them in, in that way. Okay, well, let's get into you know, a place where some of this work is starting. Let's let's talk a bit about the, the river wharf at, at Ilkley. And, you know, the, in the development of some of the other content around bathing waters, I know um, the three of us have had some in-depth conversations. And I think from my perspective, I've really grown to understand what a complex picture it is um, in terms of all the factors you've talked about, in terms of all the bodies and the, and the people involved. I was wondering maybe... Martin, if you could paint a bit of that picture for us and, and tell us what the situation is at Ilkley. Okay, uh, just to put it in context, so Ilkley's probably one of the, um, I'd say it's a larger uh, market town, and it's right on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales National Park. So it's only uh, it's only about 10 miles outside the boundary of the National Park. So if you imagine, um, you know, if you've got that picture in your mind of our Yorkshire farm with uh, dry stone walls and 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 sheep uh, and uh, and and cows grazing in in fields full of wildflowers, a la Swaledale, Wharfdale. That's that's kind of not very far away from where Ilkley is. How did it come about to be the first designated bathing water in England? Is a really interesting story. It goes back to about 2015. If you remember the, I can't remember the name of the storm, but it was the 2015 Boxing Day floods, and 2015-2016, uh, quite a lot of flooding in Wharfdale led to a bit of a culvert collapse in in Ilkley, which meant that the sewage works was discharging its storm flow because surface water had been diverted into the combined sewer network. When I say the combined sewer network, that's that's where the foul network, the bit that comes from your toilet to the to the sewage works. Uh, meets and is combined with the surface water network, i.e. the road drains. Uh, sometimes you'll get the foul network going directly to the sewer work, sewage works. Commonly, it's it's a combined system designed so that that surface water, the rainwater, would help flush out the the dirty foul sewer and take it to the sewage works. All all seems very all seems very logical until you get a, like a massive storm uh, and there's too much surface water entering that combined the sewage system and the sewage works that it's going to the inlet of the sewage works can't cope with the amount of liquid that's arriving so the sewage works at Ilkley can treat about 140 litres a second of, of effluent coming into it any more than that and it's got to get rid of it otherwise it would all back up in the system and it would pop out through everybody's toilet in Ilkley which would not be ideal uh, so that's where uh, where the concept of the storm uh, of the CSO, the, the, the combined sewer overflow or combined sewer outfall comes in its context. So when a sewage works can't cope with the amount of liquid that's coming into it, it's jettisoned into the uh, into the river via an outfall. But the idea behind that is that there's so much rainwater mixed with that uh, with that foul sewage that it causes a dilution effect that isn't going to impact the ecology of the river. That's the general concept. So 2015, had a big storm. Some of those culverts were damaged and that outfall was running continuously. And people noticed it because for good or for ill, people put things down the toilet that they shouldn't and they become very visible when they come out through an, through an outfall. So the community group had noticed that this outfall was running continuously. Ultimately, it got fixed, but it, uh, because we'd had that conversation 
uh, and Yorkshire Water had had that conversation with the community group. They kept an eye on it because they were concerned about it. Uh, and then it kept spilling, and it kept spilling on days uh, where it didn't seem to be raining that much. So they started to, the community group started to ask questions. Uh, they weren't happy about some of the detritus that was left on the on the bank side. Uh, and we got into a number of town meetings where we talked about how, how things could be fixed and, and improved. One of the issues that we came up against was that uh, Yorkshire Water have an investment programme whereby they assess problems, uh, and that goes into a five-year uh, project plan. And then five years after that, they start doing the capital work. So it takes takes about 10 years, usually, from an from a issue being identified to it being fixed. And the community group flagged up to us that, uh, yeah, that's not quick enough. Yorkshire Water and the Environment Agency, you need to uh, pull your finger out uh, and get motoring and, and fix that outfall. And we discussed a number of reasons. Um, and and uh, probably uh, I personally will take responsibility for infuriating them by saying, yeah, I know that that outfall's spilling and it's spilling too frequently. We know that. But when we look at the uh, look at the monitoring information we've got, the overall river is too clean for us to put it at the top of the list. So, yeah, lesson learned for me. Uh, that's one way to get uh, people to kind of uh, really gather together and give the environment agency a hard time around some of the answers, around some of the processes that we use fixing things. And it came up in discussion that uh, one of the things that the group were worried about was the fact that people use the river for recreation. And at that point, you kind of say, well, human health, not really our bag. You need to talk to uh, the local authority in the environmental health department. We're currently here, or our legislation is here under the Water Framework Directive to take care of the otters and the and the fish and the uh, and the stoneflies, except when it's a bathing water. And then the kind of ka-ching light bulb moment uh, came for the for the community in Ilkley, and they said, "Well, if we uh, if we designated it as a bathing water, what would you do?" I said, "Well, then the outfall or or the or the water quality would then take on a whole wholly different uh, position under legislation because the bathing water directive, we would have to start monitoring bacteria." And then we would have a human. Um, then we would have a, a remit to, to consider human health, and that is largely where the where the designation came from, uh, from a dissatisfaction with the with the current processes around uh, an outfall that was spilling too frequently, and a piece of legislation that seemed to lend itself to being part of the solution to to promote the area uh, as as being more important to get us in Yorkshire Water to fix the problem more quickly. So what that ultimately led to uh, was a submission being made by a community group uh, with the consent of the landowner or landowners, both Bradford Council and Yorkshire Water own some of the, uh, own, own some of the beaches or the areas where people uh, enter the river for, for swimming, paddling, messing about on lilos, etc. That application went in and it was, uh, it was approved uh, at the end of 2020. And at that point, uh, we then get uh, we then get the task of, of measuring the uh, measuring the bathing water quality, and we set out to do that throughout 2021 between uh, May and and September, taking a sample a week uh, and looking at intestinal intracocci and E. coli uh, on a weekly basis, covering midweek weekends, and then uh, making an assessment of those uh, of those 20 samples and giving it a classification. And unfortunately, on six occasions, uh, six of the samples that, of those 20 that came back 
quite high levels of bacteria on each of those six days it had been raining. And, uh, and that's why it's been given the classification of poor. Uh, so that's kind of how it got there in, in a snapshot. In terms of where that bacteria is coming from, so the monitoring point that we put in is uh, at a place called the Cromwheel, which is, which is actually upstream of the outfall that started the look uh, or, the, or the interest in bathing waters. And the reason it's there is because that's where most people swim. That's what the regulations tell us to do. Put the monitoring point where, where most people swim. Uh, it, it being upstream of the, uh, of the outfall uh, meant that we weren't capturing the initial um, interest in the, uh, from, from the community group in terms of what the water quality was like. So we put another monitoring point downstream of the outfall just to check. So at the end of 20, uh, 2021, what we found was the upstream site is poor, downstream site is poor, but yeah, there's a lot more bacteria at the downstream site than the upstream site. We also did some DNA analysis, and what that told us uh, was that the markers that we looked at, the two key ones, were from a human source, but also from ruminants. And what that tells us is that the bathing water at Ilkley is poor, uh, not only because of sewage works, but also because of agricultural practices and the catchment. And so that revealed to us that we've got a much bigger task on our hands in terms of getting it to sufficient than just Yorkshire water you need to fix an outfall and then everything will be tickety-boo. It's, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. We've also done some modelling in, in partnership and um, Yorkshire Water have come back with some T90 figures they call. So this is survivability of bacteria in the catchment. Uh, and I won't go into any detail other than what that tells us is that everything that we record at the Cromwheel means that uh, for the 60 or so kilometres upstream of that monitoring point, all the sources of bacteria in that 60 kilometre stretch and all the tributaries that feed into that are all part of the problem. So it just basically, it means that we're, we're dealing with a whole catchment issue rather than just uh, a, a local uh, a local within the, you know, if we just solved all the issues within the, within the upstream kilometre, everything would be fine. It, what it's revealed is that it's a really quite a big investigative project that we've got to take on over the next few years. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting about that the the sort of the levels of bacteria that we've we found. So the standards that are for bathing waters are differ between coastal sites and freshwater sites for reasons that are uh, lost in the European Union. The the freshwater standards are half as stringent as the standards for coastal waters. So the amount of bacteria that are used to make that classification can be, can be considerably higher. Even even so, if you look at the the sort of levels that we're getting in in the wharf compared with the the sorts of levels of bacteria that we get in even our worst coastal sites, that they are really very much much higher, much higher indeed. And I think that reflects the the, the issues that Martin's been speaking about for the catchment that you've got an entire catchment that is draining um, through this pathway that is the river to to get to the place where we monitor it. Uh, and if that went into the sea, it would be mixed, it would be diluted, it would be dispersed. You'd have the effect of sunlight along the whole of the river, which attenuates bacteria. Um, as soon as it arrives in salt water, it starts to decay. Uh, salt water is aggressive towards these bacteria. 
there's there's a series of natural processes that purify uh, water as it as it comes down, uh, and the, the difficulty is you're you're in this pathway rather than being in in somewhere where it's it's receiving. So it is an enormous challenge to try and manage this in in a way that is going to be uh, achieving standards for for making the water's quality, and, and it's going to be a very long term thing. Thanks, both of you. I think you've painted that picture brilliantly um, for us. So. Picking up on the on the enormous challenge and, and the complexity of it and thinking specifically about engineers, what's what's the engineer's role within that? What are some of the solutions that you're looking at? I, I think if you're an engineer and you're, and you're looking at trying to design solutions, you're going to want precision and you're going to want uh, to know things very well. The environment, unfortunately, is not like that. There's an awful lot of uncertainty. So Martin was talking about the the DNA sampling that we we've, we've been doing, and that gives you a very perfect picture of the DNA that's in the bottle that you've you've taken out. But that is maybe half a liter from an entire river that's flowing past you, and it varies a lot. So lots of samples are needed, lots of information is needed to try and build up a picture of the complexity of the environment. But it's never you're never going to have enough. It's always going to have quite a degree of uncertainty. So the the modelling is is the sort of uh, where one goes to um, using water quality models to try and simulate the the range of conditions that one can get, one can expect. But even that is is um, significantly uncertain, and and there's a lot to take into account. Martin also talked about the investment cycles that we have, um, and these are five year investment cycles that we have with with water companies. And I think it's fair to expect more than one investment cycle are going to have to be involved with this. So there'll be, we've had situations on the coast. Um, I, I used to work up in the northwest. I used to work up on the file coast with the Blackpool, uh, the famous Blackpool Tower. And I, I can remember a series of schemes that were being put in place, very expensive schemes, almost half a billion pounds was spent up there on the sewerage infrastructure. And the sewerage infrastructure there had went through a series of improvements. And each time uh, that the big sources were taken out, you, you peel back the onion skin to reveal another set of sources that are slightly less significant and less important, but still enough to cause failures. Um, it, it's a real success story because the Fowl Peninsula and Blackpool has now got great water quality. Um, but it, it took decades and it took a lot of money to get to that. And I think that's going to be very much part of a part of what any any scheme to to make a problem uh bathing water get better it is going to take a lot of em, a lot of effort and is is it a lot of collaboration too um you mentioned the catchment martin catchment based approach collaboration from you know you mentioned the group as well around the river wharf i know the number of parties involved there is massive so is there a role for collaboration to play yeah i think i think that's really important because we know we've got two key sources one from uh, sewage works and one from uh, one from agriculture. So one of the things that I'd want engineers to think about is that currently the way that we disinfect for bacteria, one of the easiest ways is to pour a new concrete outfall and in that outfall have ultraviolet uh, light tubes and treat that effluent uh, with ultraviolet light. Now obviously all the parties around the table will be looking at Yorkshire Water saying, there you go, there's your off-the-shelf solution, crack on with that. But also all the parties around the table would probably say, yeah, but we've all signed up to a net zero 
carbon commitment by 2030 or 2050 at the latest. So how does pouring concrete and adding the electricity bill and having UV lights running from May to September, uh, how is that the most sensible solution? So the other solutions that we might think about are, well, we could create a big reed bed or a big lake. Um, we've described earlier that you know lakes and ponds, because of the exposure to UV, the natural attenuator for bacteria. But if you've got a narrow Yorkshire Valley, which already has a trunk road, a railway, a canal, uh, and a river in it, where's, where's the footprint that could be big enough? So how are you, how are you going to keep that? Uh, how are you going to create those kind of reed bed systems? So there's a lot of technical, there's a lot of technical engineering challenges around this. On the agriculture side, one of the key things that we could do is we could just keep the livestock out of the river. There's a great, there's a great solution. But I'm yet to see, uh, I'm yet to see the the cost effective fencing solution that doesn't get ripped out by flood water and need replacing every other year. So there's a there's an amazing challenge as well for uh, any uh, engineering brains out there. Build me a stock proof and flood proof fence that has very low maintenance costs after the after the initial ca- capital outlay for the farmer, and still uh, we have a solution whereby uh, cattle can get can get water into the drinkers through various means. So there's a number of challenges there, and there's also engineering challenges around how we store how we store animal waste. So where animals are housed over the winter and it goes into uh, muck stores, are those the most efficient and effective way of, of dealing with that manure until it gets spread on the fields at a particular time of year? And do we want to spread it on fields if we know that it's going to run off into a river that suddenly that now has a bathing, bathing water application? So there's a load of engineering challenges around that. In terms of overall catchment, interventions so for example at Ilkley one of the issues that we've already described is this problem around the combined uh, the combined sewer and too much surface water uh, getting into uh, getting into the combined sewer causing the sewage works to be overwhelmed so there's a number of solutions there in terms of how do we keep the surface water on the surface and not going into the sewer so one of the projects that's underway at the moment with Bradford Council is looking at uh, leaky dams and uh, retention systems up on Ilkley Moor and that has two benefits one that it attenuates the flood water and two it makes them more wet so that there's some blanket bog recovery so you're getting two hits there you're getting a, a flood risk solution you're getting a combined sewage solution and you're also getting a, a, a habitat creation issue because obviously blanket bog is a priority habitat not only because it's great to have blanket bog but also it's one of the best habitats to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. So there's a number of multiple wins, but there's loads more we could do in terms of sustainable urban drainage and, and smart drainage management uh, that means that surface water doesn't get into the combined system. And if you can do that in a way that's cost-effective and doesn't involve digging up the road and affecting local businesses for months on end, then you're onto a winner. But it's not an easy problem to crack. And I think there's also a role for for people members of the public because people have been for a number of years using sewers as a waste disposal system for fat soils grease baby wipes um, nappies all, all these things that actually can clog the sewers up reduce the capacity and make it much more likely that the the sewer will spill um, and the and storm overflow will will have to be used because there isn't the capacity within this in the system when we have 
things that people practically can do themselves to reduce that risk through not putting fat soils and greases down the down the uh, the sinks and and only flushing things that should be flushed down uh, toilets. Okay, you've set you've set our listeners a challenge uh, both in their professional and personal lives there. So, thank you for that. Um, I want to wrap us up soon, but I want to ask one final question, um, and it's around equality. Essentially, you know, whenever we're looking into, I guess, this change in mindset, this change in the way we we approach rivers, we want to look at how it works a- across the whole country. So. Something maybe for our listeners to think about, but how do we go about ensuring an even playing field for communities across the UK when it comes to bathing waters and rivers? Um, We've got an active application going on at the moment. We're speaking um, as the part of the River Thames at Oxford has got a consultation going out for people to consider that as a bathing water. And I think there's going to be a lot more that are going to be put forward. I, I think... The UK and uh, each and all of us have got a sort of a, a, an idea of what what is it we want our rivers to do. How much are we prepared to pay for that? So, give you give you an example. The Stantec have been commissioned by the, the government to make a, an assessment of how much would it cost to uh, separate out the combined sewer sewage system into freshwater and foul water so that we don't have to have storm overflows. And they came up with uh, an estimate that if we wanted to completely remove the storm overflows from our rivers, it would cost the country somewhere between 350 to £600 billion. And and you can compare that. I've got some figures for the National Audit Office looking at the cost of the COVID pandemic. And in September 2021, they said that has cost the country £370 billion. So to separate the combined zero flows uh, out to separate the sewage system would cost us one or two pandemics worth of money and we've, we've got to make choices you know where, where do we want to put our money that that's a political thing um and that's that that is ultimately for the government to take the people's will forward as, as what we want to do i think for me um one of the key things that uh, we ought to think about is a strategy for where river bathing could take place uh, I think earlier in the podcast, Ian talked about that pin in the map. And he also talked about how far people are from uh, from the coast, and we know these. Uh, we know the applications are going to proliferate, but we need to make sure that there is, because these are going to form honeypot locations. And some of the feedback that we, we started to get from Ilkley from the first year, some of it's about water quality, but a lot of it is about car parking and about antisocial behaviour. And about too many people using uh, a honeypot resource at, at a particular time of year. Il- Ilkley's fantastic because it's got a brilliant bus route. It's got a train uh, stop that goes straight into the centre of Leeds and Bradford, and uh, it's on a you know it's on a main road. And there is plenty of parking, albeit you have to pay for it now because there's quite a lot of businesses there. So what I'd, what I'd like to see, I'd, I'd like us to play a part as the Environment Agency in thinking about. If we were going to design this from scratch, where would we put river bathing waters based on where we thought they might pass the the really stringent bacteria tests in the regulations, but also where they were easy to get to and where the facilities that uh, are currently really essential as part of of that bathing water designation process in terms of access 
safety and uh, toilet facilities and other amenities around them so that you know people can have have access to a recreational resource that they know is going to cater to all the things they're going to need when they arrive on the day thanks martin look thank you to you both for this i think you know the the complexity of the picture means we could talk about this for for days on end but i think what we've done in this time is you've given a really nice wrap up to our engineers and given them something to to go away and think about so i really appreciate both of your time uh, and joining us today thank you very much yeah thank you thanks also to you for listening you can learn more about this topic and find more podcasts videos and other resources on the ic knowledge hub which you can access via ice.org.uk. New content will be launched most Thursdays this year, so do keep a lookout. This has been the ICE Tech Talks podcast, and I've been your host and producer for this episode, Steph Fairburn. We hope you can join us again soon.